Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading in Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 22. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 20. The Apostle elegantly adverts to both in different passages, when he says, quote, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, unquote. And, quote, now we see through a glass darkly, unquote. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 and 12. He intimates how very minute a portion of divine wisdom is given to us in the present life. For although those expressions do not simply indicate that faith is imperfect so long as we groan under a weight of flesh, but that the necessity of being constantly engaged in learning is owing to our imperfection, he at the same time reminds us that a subject which is of boundless extent cannot be comprehended by our feeble and narrow capacities. This Paul affirms of the whole church, each individual being retarded and impeded by his own ignorance from making so near an approach as were to be wished but that the foretaste which we obtain from any minute portion of faith is certain, and by no means fallacious, he elsewhere shows when he affirms that, quote, we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, unquote. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. In such degrees of ignorance, much doubt and trembling is necessarily implied, especially seeing that our heart is, by its own natural bias, prone to unbelief. To this we must add the temptations which, various in kind and infinite in number, are ever and anon violently assailing us. In particular, conscience itself, burdened with an incumbent load of sins, at one time complains and groans, at another accuses itself at one time murmurs in secret, at another openly rebels. Therefore, whether adverse circumstances betoken the wrath of God, or conscience finds the subject and matter within itself, unbelief thence draws weapons and engines to put faith to flight, the aim of all its efforts being to make us think that God is adverse and hostile to us, and thus, instead of hoping for any assistance from Him, to make us dread Him as a deadly foe. Section 21 To withstand these assaults, faith arms and fortifies itself with the word of God. When the temptation suggested is that God is an enemy because he afflicts, faith replies that while he afflicts he is merciful, his chastening proceeding more from love than anger. To the thought that God is the avenger of wickedness, it opposes the pardon ready to be bestowed on all offenses whenever the sinner betakes himself to the divine mercy. Thus the pious mind, how much soever it may be agitated and torn, at length rises superior to all difficulties, and allows not its confidence in the divine mercy to be destroyed. 
nay, rather, the disputes which exercise and disturb it tend to establish this confidence. A proof of this is that the saints, when the hand of God lies heaviest upon them, still lodge their complaints with him, and continue to invoke him when to all appearance he is least disposed to hear. But of what use were it to lament before him if they had no hope of solace? They never would invoke him did they not believe that he is ready to assist them. Thus the disciples, while reprimanded by their master for the weakness of their faith in crying out that they were perishing, still implored his aid. Matthew 8, verse 25. And he, in rebuking them for their want of faith, does not disown them or class them with unbelievers, but urges them to shake off the vice. Therefore, as we have already said, we again maintain that faith, remaining fixed in the believer's breast, never can be eradicated from it. However it may seem shaken and bent in this direction or in that, its flame is never so completely quenched as not at least to lurk under the embers. In this way it appears that the word, which is an incorruptible seed, produces fruit similar to itself. Its germ never withers away utterly and perishes. The saints cannot have a stronger ground for despair than to feel that, according to present appearances, the hand of God is armed for their destruction. And yet Job thus declares the strength of his confidence, quote, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, unquote. The truth is that unbelief reigns not in the hearts of believers, but only assails them from without, does not wound them mortally with its darts, but annoys them, or at the utmost gives them a wound which can be healed. Faith, as Paul declares in Ephesians 6, verse 16, is our shield, which, receiving these darts, either wards them off entirely, or at least breaks their force, and prevents them from reaching the vitals. Hence, when faith is shaken, it is just as when, by the violent blow of a javelin, a soldier standing firm is forced to step back and yield a little. And again, when faith is wounded, it is as if the shield were pierced, but not perforated by the blow. The pious mind will always rise and be able to say with David, quote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Unquote. Psalm 23, verse 4. Doubtless it is a terrific thing to walk in the darkness of death, and it is impossible for our believers, however great their strength may be, not to shudder at it. But since the prevailing thought is that God is present and providing for their safety, the feeling of security overcomes that of fear. As Augustine says, whatever be the engines which the devil erects against us, as he cannot gain the heart where faith dwells, he is cast out. Thus, if we may judge by the event, not only do believers come off safe from every contest, so as to be ready after a short repose to descend again into the arena, but the saying of John in his epistle is fulfilled, quote, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 4. It is not said that it will be victorious in a single fight, or a few, or someone assault, but that it will be victorious over the whole world, though it should be a thousand times assailed. Section 22. There is another species of fear and trembling which, so far from impairing the security of faith, tends rather to establish it, namely, when believers, reflecting that the examples of the divine vengeance on the ungodly are a kind of beacons, warning them not to provoke the wrath of God by similar wickedness, Keep anxious watch, or, taking a view of their own inherent wretchedness, learn their entire dependence on God, without whom they feel themselves to be fleeting and evanescent as the wind. For when the apostle sets before the Corinthians the scourges which the Lord in ancient times inflicted on the people of Israel, that they might be afraid of subjecting themselves to similar calamities, he does not in any degree destroy the ground of their confidence. 
He only shakes off their carnal torpor which suppresses faith, but does not strengthen it. Nor, when he takes occasion from the case of the Israelites to exhort, quote, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He does not bid us waver, as if we had no security for our steadfastness. He only removes arrogance and rash confidence in our strength, telling the Gentiles not to presume because the Jews had been cast off, and they had been admitted to their place. Romans 11, verse 20. In that passage, indeed, he is not addressing believers only, but also comprehends hypocrites, who gloried merely in external appearance. Nor is he addressing individuals, but contrasting the Jews and Gentiles. He first shows that the rejection of the former was a just punishment of their ingratitude and unbelief, and then exhorts the latter to beware lest pride and presumption deprive them of the grace of adoption, which had lately been transferred to them. For as in that rejection of the Jews there still remained some who were not excluded from the covenant of adoption, so there might be some among the Gentiles who, possessing no true faith, were only puffed up with vain carnal confidence, and so abused the goodness of God to their own destruction. But though you should hold that the words were addressed to elect believers, no inconsistency will follow. It is one thing, in order to prevent believers from indulging vain confidence, to repress the temerity which, from the remains of the flesh, sometimes gains upon them, and it is another thing to strike terror into their consciences, and prevent them from feeling secure in the mercy of God. Section 23 Then, when he bids us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all he requires is that we accustom ourselves to think very meanly of our own strength, and confide in the strength of the Lord. For nothing stimulates us so strongly to place all our confidence and assurance on the Lord as self-diffidence, and the anxiety produced by a consciousness of our calamitous condition. In this sense we are to understand the words of the psalmist, quote, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple, unquote. Psalm 5, verse 7. Here he appropriately unites confident faith leaning on the divine mercy with religious fear, which of necessity we must feel whenever coming into the presence of the divine majesty. We are made aware by its splendor of the extent of our own impurity. Truly also does Solomon declare, quote, Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart falleth into mischief. Unquote. Proverbs 28, verse 14. The fear he speaks of is that which renders us more cautious, not that which produces despondency. The fear which is felt when the mind, confounded in itself, resumes its equanimity in God, downcast in itself, takes courage in God, distrusting itself, breeds confidence in God. Hence there is nothing inconsistent in believers being afraid, and at the same time possessing secure consolation as they alternately behold their own vanity and direct their thoughts to the truth of God. How, it will be asked, can fear and faith dwell in the same mind, just in the same way as sluggishness and anxiety can so dwell, the ungodly court a state of lethargy that the fear of God may not annoy them, and yet the judgment of God so urges that they cannot gain their desire, in the same way God can train his people to humility and curb them by the bridle of modesty, while yet fighting bravely. And it is plain from the context that this was the Apostle's meaning, since he states as the ground of fear and trembling, that it is God who worketh in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. In the same sense must we understand the words of the prophet, quote, The children of Israel, unquote, quote, shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days, unquote. Hosea 3, verse 5.
For not only does piety beget reverence to God, but the sweet attractiveness of grace inspires a man, though desponding of himself at once with fear and admiration, making him feel his dependence on God, and submit humbly to his power. Section 24. Here, however, we give no countenance to that most pestilential philosophy, which some semi-papists are at present beginning to broach in corners. Unable to defend the gross doubt inculcated by the schoolmen, they have recourse to another fiction that they may compound a mixture of faith and unbelief. They admit that whenever we look to Christ, we are furnished with full ground for hope. But as we are ever unworthy of all the blessings which are offered us in Christ, they will have us to fluctuate and hesitate in the view of our unworthiness. In short, they give conscience a position between hope and fear, making it alternate by successive turns to the one and the other. Hope and fear, again, they place in complete contrast, the one falling as the other rises, and rising as the other falls. Thus Satan, finding the devices by which he was wont to destroy the certainty of faith too manifest to be now of any avail, is endeavoring by indirect methods to undermine it. But what kind of confidence is that which is ever and anon supplanted by despair? They tell you, if you look to Christ, salvation is certain. If you return to yourself, damnation is certain. Therefore your mind must be alternately ruled by diffidence and hope, as if we were to imagine Christ standing at a distance, and not rather dwelling in us. We expect salvation from him, not because he stands aloof from us, but because in grafting us into his body, he not only makes us partakers of all his benefits, but also of himself. Therefore I thus retort the argument. If you look to yourself, damnation is certain. But since Christ has been communicated to you with all his benefits, so that all which is his is made yours, you become a member of him, and hence one with him. His righteousness covers your sins. His salvation extinguishes your condemnation. He interposes with his worthiness, and so prevents your unworthiness from coming into the view of God. Thus it truly is. It will never do to separate Christ from us, nor us from him. But we must, with both hands, keep firm hold of that alliance by which he has riveted us to himself. This the Apostle teaches us. Quote, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 10. According to the frivolous trifling of these objectors, he ought to have said, Christ indeed has life in himself, but you, as you are sinners, remain liable to death and condemnation. Very different is his language. He tells us that the condemnation which we of ourselves deserve is annihilated by the salvation of Christ. And to confirm this, he employs the argument to which I have referred, viz., that Christ is not external to us, but dwells in us, and not only unites us to himself by an undivided bond of fellowship, but by a wondrous communion brings us daily into closer connection, until he becomes altogether one with us. And yet I deny not, as I lately said, that faith occasionally suffers certain interruptions when, by violent assault, its weakness is made to bend in this direction or in that, and its light is buried in the thick darkness of temptation. Still happen what may, faith ceases not to long after God. Section 25. The same doctrine is taught by Bernard when he treats professedly on this subject in his fifth homily in the dedication of the temple. Quote, by the blessing of God, sometimes meditating on the soul, methinks I find in it, as it were, two contraries. When I look at it as it is in itself and of itself, the truest thing I can say of it is that it has been reduced to nothing. What need is there to enumerate each of its miseries? How burdened with sin, obscured with darkness, ensnared by allurements, 
teeming with lusts, ruled by passion, filled with delusions, ever prone to evil, inclined to every vice, lastly full of ignominy and confusion, if all its righteousnesses, when examined by the light of truth, are but as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6, what must we suppose its unrighteousness to be? Quote, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Close, quote, Matthew 6, verse 23. What then? Man doubtless has been made subject to vanity. Man has been reduced to nothing. Man is nothing, and yet how is he whom God exalts utterly nothing? How is he nothing to whom a divine heart has been given? Let us breathe again, brethren. Although we are nothing in our hearts, perhaps something of us may lurk in the heart of God. O Father of mercies, O Father of the miserable, how plantest thou thy heart in us? Where thy heart is, there is thy treasure also. But how are we thy treasure if we are nothing? All nations before thee are as nothing. Observe before thee, not within thee. Such are they in the judgment of thy truth, but not such in regard to thy affection. Thou callest the things which be not as though they were, and they are not, because thou callest them, quote, things that be not, close quote, and yet they are because thou callest them. For though they are not as to themselves, yet they are with thee according to the declaration of Paul. Quote, not of works, but of him that calleth. Close, quote, close quotes. Romans 9, verse 11. He then goes on to say that the connection is wonderful in both points of view. Certainly things which are connected together do not mutually destroy each other. This he explains more clearly in this conclusion in the following terms. Quote, if in both views we diligently consider what we are, in the one view our nothingness, in the other our greatness, I presume our glorying will seem restrained, but perhaps it is rather increased and confirmed because we glory not in ourselves but in the Lord. Our thought is, if he determined to save us, we shall be delivered, and here we begin again to breathe. But ascending to a loftier height, let us seek the city of God, let us seek the temple, let us seek our home, let us seek our spouse. I have not forgotten myself when, with fear and reverence, I say, we are, are in the heart of God. We are, by his dignifying, not by our own dignity. Unquote. Section 26. Moreover, the fear of the Lord, which is uniformly attributed to all the saints, and which in one passage is called, quote, the beginning of wisdom, unquote, in another, wisdom itself, although it is one, proceeds from a twofold cause. God is entitled to the reverence of a father and a lord. Hence he who desires duly to worship him will study to act the part both of an obedient son and a faithful servant. The obedience paid to God as a father he by his prophet terms honor. The service performed to him as a master he terms fear. Quote, a son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Unquote. Psalm 111, verse 10, Proverbs 1, verse 7, and 9, verse 10, and 15, verse 24, Job 28, verse 28, and Malachi 1, verse 6. But while he thus distinguishes between the two, it is obvious that he at the same time confounds them. The fear of the Lord, therefore, may be defined reverence mingled with honor and fear. It is not strange that the same mind can entertain both feelings, for he who considers with himself what kind of a father God is to us will see sufficient reason, even were there no hell, why the thought of offending him should seem more dreadful than any death. 
But so prone is our carnal nature to indulgence and sin, that in order to curb it in every way we must also give place to the thought that all iniquity is abomination to the Master under whom we live, that those who by wicked lies provoke his anger will not escape his vengeance. Section 27. There is nothing repugnant to this in the observation of John. Quote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. Unquote. 1 John 4, verse 18. For he is speaking of the fear of unbelief, between which and the fear of believers there is a wide difference. The wicked do not fear God from any unwillingness to offend him, provided they could so with impunity. But knowing that he is armed with power for vengeance, they tremble in dismay on hearing of his anger. And they thus dread his anger, because they think it is impending over them, and they every moment expect it to fall upon their heads. But believers, as has been said, dread the offense even more than the punishment. They are not alarmed by the fear of punishment, as if it were impending over them, but are rendered the more cautious of doing anything to provoke it. Thus the apostle addressing believers says, quote, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 6, and Colossians 3, verse 6. He does not threaten that wrath will descend upon them, but he admonishes them, while they think how the wrath of God is prepared for the wicked on account of the crimes which he had enumerated, not to run the risk of provoking it. It seldom happens that mere threatenings have the effect of arousing the reprobate. Nay, becoming more callous and hardened when God thunders verbally from heaven, they obstinately persist in their rebellion. It is only when actually smitten by his hand that they are forced, whether they will or not, to fear. This fear, the sacred writers term servile, and opposed to the free and voluntary fear which becomes sons. Some, by subtle distinction, have introduced an intermediate species, holding that that forced and servile fear sometimes subdues the mind and leads spontaneously to proper fear. Section 28. The divine favor to which faith is said to have respect, we understand to include in it the possession of salvation and eternal life. For if, when God is propitious, no good thing can be wanting to us, we have ample security for our salvation, when assured of his love. Quote, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, unquote, says the prophet. Quote, and we shall be saved. Unquote. Psalm 80, verse 3. Hence the scriptures make the sum of our salvation to consist in the removal of all enmity, and our admission into favor thus intimating that when God is reconciled, all danger is past, and everything good will befall us. Wherefore, faith apprehending the love of God has the promise both of the present and the future life, and ample security for all blessings. Ephesians 2, verse 14. The nature of this must be ascertained from the word. Faith does not promise us length of days, riches, and honors, the Lord not having been pleased that any of these should be appointed us but is contented with the assurance that however poor we may be in regard to present comforts, God will never fail us. The chief security lies in the expectation of future life, which is placed beyond doubt by the word of God. Whatever be the miseries and calamities which await the children of God in this world, they cannot make his favor cease to be complete happiness. Hence, when we were desirous to express the sum of blessedness, we designated it by the favor of God, from which, as their source, all kinds of blessings flow. And we may observe throughout the scriptures that they refer us to the love of God, not only when they treat of our eternal salvation, but of any blessing whatever. For which reason David sings that the loving kindness of God experienced by the pious heart is sweeter and more to be desired than life itself. Psalm 63, verse 3. In short, 
if we have every earthly comfort to a wish, but are uncertain whether we have the love or the hatred of God, our felicity will be cursed and therefore miserable. But if God lift on us the light of his fatherly countenance, our very miseries will be blessed, inasmuch as they will become helps to our salvation. Thus Paul, after bringing together all kinds of adversity, boasts that they cannot separate us from the love of God, and in his prayers he uniformly begins with the grace of God as the source of all prosperity. In like manner, to all the terrors which assail us, David opposes merely the favor of God. Quote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Unquote. Psalm 23, verse 4. And we feel that our minds always waver until, contented with the grace of God, we in it seek peace and feel thoroughly persuaded of what is said in the psalm. Quote, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Unquote. Psalm 33, verse 12. Section 29. Free promise we make the foundation of faith, because in it faith properly consists. For though it holds that God is always true, whether in ordering or forbidding, promising or threatening, though it obediently receive his commands, observe his prohibitions, and give heed to his threatenings, yet it properly begins with promise, continues with it, and ends with it. It seeks life in God, life which is not found in commands or the denunciations of punishment, but in the promise of mercy. And this promise must be gratuitous, for a conditional promise which throws us back upon our works promises life only insofar as we find it existing in ourselves. Therefore, if we would not have faith to waver and tremble, we must support it with a promise of salvation, which is offered by the Lord spontaneously and freely, from a regard to our misery rather than our worth. Hence, the Apostle bears this testimony to the Gospel, that it is the word of faith, Romans 10, verse 8. This he concedes not either to the precepts or the promises of the law, since there is nothing which can establish our faith, but that free embassy by which God reconciles the world to himself. Hence, he often uses faith and the gospel as correlative terms, as when he says that the ministry of the gospel was committed to him for, quote, obedience to the faith, unquote, that, quote, it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, unquote, that, quote, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, unquote, Romans 1, verses 5, 16, and 17. No wonder, for seeing that the gospel is, quote, the ministry of reconciliation, unquote, 2 Corinthians 5.18, there is no other sufficient evidence of the divine favor, such as faith, requires to know. Therefore, when we say that faith must rest on a free promise, we deny not that believers accept and embrace the word of God in all its parts, but we point to the promise of mercy as its special object. Believers, indeed, ought to recognize God as the judge and avenger of wickedness, and yet mercy is the object to which they properly look, since he is exhibited to their contemplation as, quote, good and ready to forgive, unquote, quote, plenteous in mercy, unquote, quote, slow to anger, unquote, quote, good to all, unquote, and shedding, quote, his tender mercies over all his works, unquote, Psalm 86, verse 5, and 103, verse 8, and 145, verses 8 and 9. Section 30. I stay not to consider the rabid objections of Piggyus and others like-minded who inveigh against this restriction as rending faith and laying hold of one of its fragments. 
I admit, as I have already said, that the general object of faith, as they express it, is the truth of God, whether he threatens or gives hope of his favor. Accordingly, the apostle attributes it to faith in Noah that he feared the destruction of the world, when as yet it was not seen. Hebrews 11, verse 17. If fear of impending punishment was a work of faith, threatenings ought not to be excluded in defining it. This is indeed true, but we are unjustly and calumniously charged with denying that faith has respect to the whole word of God. We only mean to maintain these two points, that faith is never decided until it attained to a free promise, and that the only way in which faith reconciles us to God is by uniting us with Christ. Both are deserving of notice. We are inquiring after a faith which separates the children of God from the reprobate, believers from unbelievers. Shall every man then who believes that God is just in what he commands, and true in what he threatens, be on that account classed with believers? Very far from it. Faith, then, has no firm footing until it stand in the mercy of God. Then what end have we in view in discoursing of faith? Is it not that we may understand the way of salvation? But how can faith be saving unless insofar as it engrafts us into the body of Christ? There is no absurdity, therefore, when, in defining it, we thus press its special object, and, by way of distinction, add to the generic character the particular mark which distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. In short, the malicious have nothing to carp at in this doctrine, unless they are to bring the same censure against the Apostle Paul, who specially designates the gospel as, quote, the word of faith, unquote, Romans 10, verse 8. Section 31. Hence again we infer, as has already been explained, that faith has no less need of the word than the fruit of a tree has of a living root, because, as David testifies, none can hope in God but those who know his name. Psalm 9, verse 10. This knowledge, however, is not left to every man's imagination, but depends on the testimony which God himself gives to his goodness. This the same psalmist confirms in another passage, quote, Thy salvation according to thy word, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 41. Again, quote, Save me, unquote. Quote, I hoped in thy word, unquote. Psalm 119, verses 146 and 147. Here we must attend to the relation of faith to the word and to salvation as its consequence. Still, however, we exclude not the power of God. If faith cannot support itself in the view of this power, it never will give him the honor which is due. Paul seems to relate a trivial or very ordinary circumstance with regard to Abraham when he says that he believed that God, who had given him the promise of a blessed seed, was able also to perform it. Romans 4, verse 21. And in like manner, in another passage, he says of himself, quote, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Unquote. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. But let any one consider with himself how he is ever and anon assailed with doubts in regard to the power of God, and he will readily perceive that those who duly magnify it have made no small progress in faith. We all acknowledge that God can do whatever he pleases, but while every temptation, even the most trivial, fills us with fear and dread, it is plain that we derogate from the power of God by attaching less importance to his promises than to Satan's threatenings against them. This is the reason why Isaiah, when he would impress on the hearts of the people the certainty of faith, discourses so magnificently of the boundless power of God. 
he often seems, after beginning to speak of the hope of pardon and reconciliation, to digress and unnecessarily take a long circuitous course, describing how wonderfully God rules the fabric of heaven and earth with the whole course of nature, and yet he introduces nothing which is not appropriate to the occasion, because unless the power of God to which all things are possible is presented to our eye, our ears malignantly refuse admission to the word or set no just value upon it. We may add that an effectual power is here meant, for piety, as it has elsewhere been seen, always makes a practical application of the power of God, in particular keeps those works in view in which he has declared himself to be a father, hence the frequent mention in scripture of redemption, from which the Israelites might learn that he who had once been the author of salvation would be its perpetual guardian. By his own example, also, David reminds us that the benefits which God has bestowed privately on any individual tend to confirm his faith for the time to come. Nay, that when God seems to have forsaken us, we ought to extend our view farther and take courage from his former favors, as is said in another psalm, quote, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works, unquote. Psalm 143, verse 5. Again, quote, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Unquote. Psalm 77, verse 11. But because all our conceptions of the power and works of God are evanescent without the word, we are not rash in maintaining that there is no faith until God present us with clear evidence of his grace. Here, however, a question might be raised as to the view to be taken of Sarah and Rebekah, both of whom, impelled as it would seem by zeal for the faith, went beyond the limits of the word. Sarah, in her eager desire for the promised seed, gave her maid to her husband. That she sinned in many respects is not to be denied, but the only fault to which I now refer is her being carried away by zeal, and not confining herself within the limits prescribed by the word. It is certain, however, that her desire proceeded from faith. Rebekah again, divinely informed of the election of her son Jacob, procures the blessing for him by a wicked stratagem deceives her husband, who was a witness and minister of divine grace, forces her son to lie, by various frauds and impostures corrupts divine truth, and fine, by exposing his promise to scorn, does what in her lies to make it of no effect. And yet this conduct, however vicious and reprehensible, was not devoid of faith. She must have overcome many obstacles before she obtained so strong a desire of that which, without any hope of earthly advantage, was full of difficulty and danger. In the same way, we cannot say that the holy patriarch Isaac was altogether void of faith, in that, after he had been similarly informed of the honor transferred to the younger son, he still continues his predilection in favor of his firstborn, Esau. These examples certainly show that error is often mingled with faith, and yet that when faith is real, it always obtains the preeminence. For as the particular error of Rebekah did not render the blessing of no effect, neither did it nullify the faith which generally ruled in her mind and was the principle and cause of that action. In this, nevertheless, Rebekah showed how prone the human mind is to turn aside whenever it gives itself the least indulgence. But though defect and infirmity obscure faith, they do not extinguish it. Still they admonish us how carefully we ought to cling to the word of God, and at the same time confirm what we have taught, viz., that faith gives way when not supported by the word, just as the minds of Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah would have lost themselves in devious paths had not the secret restraint of providence kept them obedient to the word. Section 32. On the other hand, we have good ground for comprehending all the promises in Christ, 
since the apostle comprehends the whole gospel under the knowledge of Christ, and declares that all the promises of God are in him, yea, and amen. Romans 1, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. The reason for this is obvious. Every promise which God makes is evidence of his good will. This is invariably true, and is not inconsistent with the fact that the large benefits which the divine liberality is constantly bestowing on the wicked are preparing them for a heavier judgment. As they neither think that these proceed from the hand of the Lord, nor acknowledge them as his, or if they do so acknowledge them, never regard them as proofs of his favor, they are in no respect more instructed thereby in his mercy than brute beasts, which, according to their condition, enjoy the same liberality, and yet never look beyond it. Still, it is true that by rejecting the promises generally offered to them, they subject themselves to severer punishment. For though it is only when the promises are received in faith that their efficacy is manifested, still their reality and power are never extinguished by our infidelity or ingratitude. Therefore, when the Lord, by his promises, invites us not only to enjoy the fruits of his kindness, but also to meditate upon them, he at the same time declares his love. Thus we are brought back to our statement that every promise is a manifestation of the divine favor toward us. Now, without controversy, God loves no man out of Christ. He is the beloved Son, in whom the love of the Father dwells, and from whom it afterwards extends to us. Thus Paul says, quote, In whom he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 6. It is by his intervention, therefore, that love is diffused so as to reach us. Accordingly, in another passage, the Apostle calls Christ, quote, our peace, unquote, Ephesians 2, verse 14, and also represents him as the bond by which the Father is united to us in paternal affection, Romans 8, verse 3. It follows that whenever any promise is made to us, we must turn our eyes toward Christ. Hence, with good reason, Paul declares that in him all the promises of God are confirmed and completed, Romans 15, verse 8. Some examples are brought forward as repugnant to this view. When Naaman the Syrian made inquiry at the prophet as to the true mode of worshiping God, we cannot, it is said, suppose that he was informed of the mediator, and yet he is commended for his piety, 2 Kings 5, verses 17 through 19. Nor could Cornelius, a Roman heathen, be acquainted with what was not known to all the Jews, and at best known obscurely, and yet his alms and prayers were acceptable to God, Acts 10, verse 31, while the prophet by his answer approved of the sacrifices of Naaman. In both, this must have been the result of faith. In like manner, the eunuch to whom Philip was sent, had he not been endued with some degree of faith, never would have incurred the fatigue and expense of a long and difficult journey to obtain an opportunity of worship. Acts 8, verses 27 and 31. And yet we see how, when interrogated by Philip, he betrays his ignorance of the mediator. I admit that, in some respect, their faith was not explicit either as to the person of Christ or the power and office assigned him by the Father. Still it is certain that they were imbued with principles which might give some, though a slender, foretaste of Christ. This should not be thought strange, for the eunuch would not have hastened from a distant country to Jerusalem to an unknown God, nor could Cornelius, after having once embraced the Jewish religion, have lived so long in Judea without becoming acquainted with the rudiments of sound doctrine. In regard to Naaman, it is absurd to suppose that Elisha, while he gave him many minute precepts, said nothing of the principal matter. Therefore, although their knowledge of Christ may have been obscure, we cannot suppose that they had no such knowledge at all. They used the sacrifices of the law and must have distinguished them from the spurious sacrifices of the Gentiles by the end to which they referred, viz. Christ.
Section 33. A simple external manifestation of the word ought to be amply sufficient to produce faith, did not our blindness and perverseness prevent. But such is the proneness of our mind to vanity, that it can never adhere to the truth of God, and such its dullness, that it is always blind even in his light. Hence, without the illumination of the Spirit, the word has no effect, and hence also it is obvious that faith is something higher than human understanding. Nor were it sufficient for the mind to be illumined by the Spirit of God unless the heart also were strengthened and supported by his power. Here the schoolmen go completely astray, dwelling entirely in their consideration of faith on the bare, simple assent of the understanding, and altogether overlooking confidence and security of heart. Faith is a special gift of God in both ways, in purifying the mind so as to give it a relish for divine truth, and afterwards in establishing it therein. For the Spirit does not merely originate faith, but gradually increases it, until by its means he conducts us into the heavenly kingdom. Quote, that good thing which was committed unto thee, unquote, says Paul, quote, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, unquote, 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. In what sense Paul says, in Galatians 3, verse 2, that the Spirit is given by the hearing of faith may be easily explained. If there were only a single gift of the Spirit, he who is the author and cause of faith could not without absurdity be said to be its effect. But after celebrating the gifts with which God adorns his church, and by successive additions of faith leads it to perfection, there is nothing strange in his ascribing to faith the very gifts which faith prepares us for receiving. It seems to some paradoxical when it is said that none can believe Christ save those to whom it is given. But this is partly because they do not observe how recondite and sublime heavenly wisdom is, or how dull the mind of man in discerning divine mysteries and partly because they pay no regard to that firm and stable constancy of heart which is the chief part of faith. Section 34. But as Paul argues, quote, What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. If in regard to divine truth we hesitate even as to those things which we see with the bodily eye, how can we be firm and steadfast in regard to those divine promises which neither the eye sees nor the mind comprehends? Here human discernment is so defective and lost that the first step of advancement in the school of Christ is to renounce it. Matthew 11, verse 25, and Luke 10, verse 21. Like a veil interposed, it prevents us from beholding divine mysteries, which are revealed only to babes. Quote, flesh and blood, unquote, doth not reveal them. Matthew 16, verse 17. Quote, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The supplies of the Holy Spirit are therefore necessary, or rather his agency is here the only strength. Quote, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Unquote. Romans 11, verse 34. But, quote, The Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Thus it is that we attain to the mind of Christ. Quote, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Unquote. Quote, Every man, therefore, that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Unquote. John 6, verses 44, 45, and 46. 
Therefore, as we cannot possibly come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit, so when we are drawn we are both in mind and spirit exalted far above our own understanding. For the soul, when illumined by him, receives, as it were, a new eye, enabling it to contemplate heavenly mysteries, by the splendor of which it was previously dazzled. And thus, indeed, it is only when the human intellect is irradiated by the light of the Holy Spirit that it begins to have a taste of those things which pertain to the kingdom of God. Previously it was too stupid and senseless to have any relish for them. Hence our Savior, when clearly declaring the mysteries of the kingdom to the two disciples, makes no impression till he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Luke 24, verses 27 and 45. Hence also, though he had taught the apostles with his own divine lips, it was still necessary to send the Spirit of truth to instill into their minds the same doctrine which they had heard with their ears. The word is, in regard to those to whom it is preached, like the sun which shines upon all, but is of no use to the blind. In this matter we are all naturally blind, and hence the word cannot penetrate our mind unless the Spirit, that internal teacher, by his enlightening power, makes an entrance for it. Section 35. Having elsewhere shown more fully, when treating of the corruption of our nature, how little able men are to believe. Book 2, Chapters 2 and 3. I will not fatigue the reader by again repeating it. That it suffice to observe that the spirit of faith is used by Paul as synonymous with the very faith which we receive from the Spirit, but which we have not naturally. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Accordingly, he prays for the Thessalonians, quote, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. Hereby designating faith the work of God and distinguishing it by way of epithet, appropriately calling it his good pleasure, he declares that it is not of man's own nature, and not contented with this, he adds, that it is an illustration of divine power. In addressing the Corinthians when he tells them that faith stands not, quote, in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God, unquote, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he is no doubt speaking of external miracles. But as the reprobate are blinded when they behold them, he also includes that internal seal of which he elsewhere makes mention. And the better to display his liberality in this most excellent gift, God does not bestow it upon all promiscuously, but by special privilege, imparts it to whom he will. To this effect, we have already quoted passages of Scripture, as to which Augustine, their faithful expositor, exclaims, quote, Our Savior to teach that faith in him is a gift, not a merit, says, quote, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Close quote. John 6, verse 44. It is strange when two persons hear, the one despises, the other ascends. Let him who despises impute it to himself. Let him who ascends not arrogate it to himself. Close quotes. In another passage he asks, quote, Wherefore is it given to the one and not to the other? I am not ashamed to say, this is one of the deep things of the cross. From some unknown depth of the judgments of God, which we cannot scrutinize, all our ability proceeds. I see that I am able, but how I am able I see not. This far only I see, that it is of God. But why the one and not the other? This is too great for me. It is an abyss, a depth of the cross. I can cry out with wonder, not discuss and demonstrate, unquote. The whole comes to this, that Christ, when he produces faith in us by the agency of his Spirit, at the same time engrafts us into his body, that we may become partakers of all blessings. Section 36. The next thing necessary is that what the mind has imbibed be transferred into the heart. 
The word is not received in faith when it merely flutters in the brain, but when it has taken deep root in the heart and become an invincible bulwark to withstand and repel all the assaults of temptation. But if the illumination of the Spirit is the true source of understanding in the intellect, much more manifest is his agency in the confirmation of the heart, inasmuch as there is more distrust in the heart than blindness in the mind, and it is more difficult to inspire the soul with security than to imbue it with knowledge. Hence the Spirit performs the part of a seal, sealing upon our hearts the very promises, the certainty of which was previously impressed upon our minds. It also serves as an earnest in establishing and confirming these promises. Thus the Apostle says, quote, In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. You see how he teaches that the hearts of believers are stamped with the Spirit as with a seal, and calls it the Spirit of promise, because it ratifies the gospel to us. In like manner he says to the Corinthians, Quote, God hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. And again, when speaking of a full and confident hope, he founds it on the, quote, earnest of the Spirit. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Section 37. I am not forgetting what I formerly said, and experience brings daily to remembrance, viz., that faith is subject to various doubts, so that the minds of believers are seldom at rest, or at least are not always tranquil. Still, whatever be the engines by which they are shaken, they either escape from the whirlpool of temptation, or remain steadfast in their place. Faith finds security and protection in the words of the psalm, quote, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, unquote. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. This delightful tranquility is elsewhere described, quote, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me, unquote. Psalm 3, verse 5. Not that David was uniformly in this joyful frame, but insofar as the measure of his faith made him sensible of the divine favor, he glories in intrepidly despising everything that could disturb his peace of mind. Hence the scripture, when it exhorts us to faith, bids us be at peace. In Isaiah it is said, quote, In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, unquote. Isaiah 30, verse 15. And in the psalm, quote, Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him, unquote. Corresponding to this is the passage in the Hebrews, quote, Ye have need of patience, unquote, etc. Hebrews 10, verse 36. Section 38. Hence we may judge how pernicious is the scholastic dogma, that we can have no stronger evidence of the divine favor toward us than moral conjecture, according as each individual deems himself not unworthy of it. Doubtless, if we are to determine by our works in what way the Lord stands affected towards us, I admit that we cannot even get the length of a feeble conjecture. But since faith should accord with a free and simple promise, there is no room left for ambiguity. With what kind of confidence, pray, shall we be armed if we reason in this way? God is propitious to us, provided we deserve it by the purity of our lives. But since we have reserved this subject for discussion in its proper place, we shall not prosecute it farther at present, especially seeing it is already plain that nothing is more adverse to faith than conjecture, or any other feeling akin to doubt. Nothing can be worse than their perversion of the passage of Ecclesiastes, which is ever in their mouths. Quote, no man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Unquote. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1.
For without insisting that the passage is erroneously rendered in the common version, even a child cannot fail to perceive what Solomon's meaning is, viz., that anyone who would ascertain from the present state of things who are in the favor or under the displeasure of God labors in vain, and torments himself to no useful purpose, since, quote, all things come alike to all, unquote. Quote, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not, unquote. And hence God does not always declare his love to those on whom he bestows uninterrupted prosperity, nor his hatred against those whom he afflicts. And it tends to prove the vanity of the human intellect, that it is so completely in the dark as to matters which it is of the highest importance to know. Thus Solomon had said a little before, quote, That which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Unquote. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19. Were any one thence to infer that we hold the immortality of the soul by conjecture merely, would he not justly be deemed insane? Are those then sane who cannot obtain any certainty of the divine favor because the carnal eye is now unable to discern it from the present appearance of the world? Section 39. But, they say, it is rash and presumptuous to pretend to an undoubted knowledge of the divine will. I would grant this, did we hold that we were able to subject the incomprehensible counsel of God to our feeble intellect. But when we simply say with Paul, quote, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, unquote. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. What can they oppose to this without offering insult to the spirit of God? But if it is sacrilege to charge the revelation which he has given us with falsehood, or uncertainty, or ambiguity, how can we be wrong in maintaining its certainty? But they still exclaim that there is great temerity in our presuming to glory in possessing the Spirit of God. Who could believe that these men, who desire to be thought the masters of the world, could be so stupid as to err thus grossly in the very first principles of religion? To me, indeed, it would be incredible, did not their own writings make it manifest. Paul declares that those only are the sons of God who are led by his Spirit. Romans 8, verse 14. These men would have those who are the sons of God to be led by their own and void of the divine Spirit. He tells us that we call God our Father in terms dictated by the Spirit, who alone bears witness with our Spirit that we are the sons of God. Romans 8, verse 16. They, though they forbid us not to invoke God, withdraw the Spirit by whose guidance he is duly invoked. He declares that those only are the servants of Christ who are led by the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, verse 9. They imagine a Christianity which has no need of the Spirit of Christ. He holds out the hope of a blessed resurrection to those only who feel his Spirit dwelling in them. Romans 8, verse 11. They imagine hope when there is no such feeling. But perhaps they will say that they deny not the necessity of being endued with the Spirit, but only hold it to be the part of modesty and humility not to recognize it. What, then, does Paul mean when he says to the Corinthians, quote, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Unquote. 2 Corinthians 13.5 John Moreover says, quote, Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Unquote. 1 John 3, verse 24 and what else is it than to bring the promises of Christ into doubt, when we would be deemed servants of Christ without having his Spirit, whom he declared that he would pour out on all his people? Isaiah 44, verse 3. What? Do we not insult the Holy Spirit when we separate faith, which is his peculiar work, from himself? These being the first rudiments of religion, it is the most wretched blindness to charge Christians with arrogance, for presuming to glory in the presence of the Holy Spirit.
a glorying without which Christianity itself does not exist. The example of these men illustrates the truth of our Savior's declaration that his spirit, quote, the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you, unquote. John 14, verse 17. Section 40. That they may not attempt to undermine the certainty of faith in one direction only, they attack it in another, viz., that though it be lawful for the believer from his actual state of righteousness to form a judgment as to the favor of God, the knowledge of final perseverance still remains in suspense. An admirable security indeed is left us if for the present moment only we can judge from moral conjecture that we are in grace, but know not how we are to be tomorrow. Very different is the language of the apostle, quote, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 38. They endeavored to evade the force of this by frivolously pretending that the apostle had this assurance by special revelation. They are too well caught thus to escape, for in that passage he is treating not of his individual experience, but of the blessings which all believers in common derive from faith. But then Paul, in another passage, alarms us by the mention of our weakness and inconstancy. Quote, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. True. But this, he says, not to inspire us with terror, but that we may learn to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as Peter explains. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Then how preposterous is it to limit the certainty of faith to a point of time, seeing it is the property of faith to pass beyond the whole course of this life and stretch forward to a future immortality. Therefore, since believers owe it to the favor of God that enlightened by His Spirit, they, through faith, enjoy the prospect of heavenly life. There is so far from an approach to arrogance and such glorying that any one ashamed to confess it, instead of testifying modesty or submission, rather betrays extreme ingratitude by maliciously suppressing the divine goodness. Section 41. Since the nature of faith could not be better or more clearly evinced than by the substance of the promise on which it leans as its proper foundation, and without which it immediately falls or rather vanishes away, we have derived our definition from it, a definition, however, not at all at variance with that definition, or rather description which the apostle accommodates to his discourse, when he says that faith is, quote, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, unquote. Hebrews 11, verse 1. For by the term substance, Greek word, iota, pi, omicron, sigma, tau, alpha, sigma, iota, zeta, hypostasis, he means a kind of prop on which the pious mind rests and leans, as if he had said that faith is a kind of certain and secure possession of those things which are promised to us by God, unless we prefer taking Greek word, upsilon, pi, omicron, sigma, tau, alpha, sigma, iota, zeta, hypostasis, for confidence. I have no objection to this, though I am more inclined to adopt the other interpretation, which is more generally received. Again, to intimate that until the last day, when the books will be opened, Daniel 7, verse 10, and Revelation 20, verse 12, the things pertaining to our salvation are too lofty to be perceived by our sense, seen by our eyes, or handled by our hands, and that in the meantime there is no possible way in which these can be possessed by us, unless we can transcend the reach of our own intellect, and raise our eye above all worldly objects. In short, surpass ourselves, he adds, that this certainty of possession relates to things which are only hoped for, and therefore not seen. 
For as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 24, quote, Hope that is seen is not hope, unquote, that we, quote, hope for that we see not, unquote. When he calls it the evidence or proof, or, as Augustine repeatedly renders it, the convictions of things not present, the Greek term being, Greek word, epsilon, lambda, epsilon, gamma, chi, omicron, zeta, elexox. It is the same as if he had called it the appearance of things not apparent, the sight of things not seen, the clearness of things obscure, the presence of things absent, the manifestation of things hid. For the mysteries of God, and to this class belong the things which pertain to our salvation, cannot be discerned in themselves, or, as it is expressed, in their own nature. But we behold them only in his word, of the truth of which we ought to be as firmly persuaded as if we held that everything which it says were done and completed. But how can the mind rise to such a perception and foretaste of the divine goodness without being at the same time wholly inflamed with love to God? The abundance of joy which God has treasured up for those who fear him cannot be truly known without making a most powerful impression. He who is thus once affected is raised and carried entirely towards him. Hence it is not strange that no sinister perverse heart ever experiences this feeling by which, transported to heaven itself, we are admitted to the most hidden treasures of God and the holiest recesses of his kingdom, which must not be profaned by the entrance of a heart that is impure. For what the schoolmen say as to the priority of love to faith and hope is a mere dream, since it is faith alone that first engenders love. How much better is Bernard, quote, the testimony of conscience, which Paul calls, inner quote, the rejoicing, close inner quote, of believers, I believe to consist in three things. It is necessary, first of all, to believe that you cannot have remission of sins except by the indulgence of God. Secondly, that you cannot have any good work at all unless he also give it. Lastly, that you cannot by any works merit eternal life unless it also be freely given. Unquote. Shortly after he admits, quote, These things are not sufficient, but are a kind of commencement of faith. For while believing that your sins can only be forgiven by God, you must also hold that they are not forgiven until persuaded by the testimony of the Holy Spirit that salvation is treasured up for us, that as God pardons sins and gives merits, and after merits rewards, you cannot halt at that beginning, unquote. But these and other topics will be considered in their own place. Let it suffice at present to understand what faith is. Section 42. Wherever this living faith exists, it must have the hope of eternal life as its inseparable companion, or rather must of itself beget and manifest it. Where it is wanting, however clearly and elegantly we may discourse of faith, it is certain we have it not. For if faith is, as has been said, a firm persuasion of the truth of God, a persuasion that it can never be false, never deceive, never be in vain, those who have received this assurance must at the same time expect that God will perform his promises, which in their conviction are absolutely true, so that in one word hope is nothing more than the expectation of those things which faith previously believes to have been truly promised by God. Thus faith believes that God is true. Hope expects that in due season he will manifest his truth. Faith believes that he is our father. Hope expects that he will always act the part of a father towards us. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us. Hope expects that it will one day be revealed. Faith is the foundation on which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. For as no man can expect anything from God without previously believing his promises, so on the other hand the weakness of our faith, which might grow weary and fall away, must be supported and cherished by patient hope and expectation. For this reason Paul justly says, quote, We are saved by hope, unquote. Romans 8, verse 24. 
For while hope silently waits for the Lord, it restrains faith from hastening on with too much precipitation, confirms it when it might waver in regard to the promises of God, or begin to doubt of their truth, refreshes it when it might be fatigued, extends its view to the final goal, so as not to allow it to give up in the middle of the course or at the very outset. In short, by constantly renovating and reviving, it is ever and anon furnishing more vigor for perseverance. On the whole, how necessary the reinforcements of hope are to establish faith will better appear if we reflect on the numerous forms of temptation by which those who have embraced the word of God are assailed and shaken. First, the Lord often keeps us in suspense by delaying the fulfillment of his promises much longer than we could wish. Here the office of hope is to perform what the prophet enjoins, quote, Though it tarry, wait for it, unquote. Habakkuk 2, verse 3. Sometimes he not only permits faith to grow languid, but even openly manifests his displeasure. Here there is still greater necessity for the aid of hope, that we may be able to say with another prophet, quote, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Unquote. Isaiah 8, verse 17. Scoffers also rise up, as Peter tells us, and ask, quote, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Unquote. Second Peter 3, verse 4. Nay, the world and the flesh insinuate the same thing. Here faith must be supported by the patience of hope, and fixed on the contemplation of eternity. Consider that, quote, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Unquote. Second Peter 3, verse 8, and Psalm 90, verse 4. Section 43. On account of this connection and affinity, Scripture sometimes confounds the two terms, faith and hope. For when Peter says that we are, quote, kept by the power of God through faith until salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he attributes to faith what more properly belongs to hope. And not without cause, since we have already shown that hope is nothing else than the food and strength of faith. Sometimes the two are joined together, as in the same epistle, quote, that your faith and hope might be in God, unquote, 1 Peter 1, verse 21. Paul, again, in the epistle to the Philippians, from hope deduces expectation, Philippians 1, verse 20, because in hoping, patiently, we suspend our wishes until God manifests his own time. The whole of this subject may be better understood from the tenth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, to which I have already adverted. Paul, in another passage, though not in strict propriety of speech, expresses the same thing in these words, quote, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, unquote. Galatians 5, verse 5. That is, after embracing the testimony of the gospel as to free love, we wait till God openly manifests what is now only an object of hope. It is now obvious how absurdly Peter Lombard lays down a double foundation of hope, viz., the grace of God and the merit of works. Hope cannot have any other object than faith has, but we have already shown clearly that the only object of faith is the mercy of God, to which, to use a common expression, it must look with both eyes. But it is worthwhile to listen to the strange reason which he adduces. If you presume, says he, to hope for anything without merit, it should be called not hope, but presumption. Who, dear reader, does not execrate the gross stupidity which calls it rashness and presumption to confide in the truth of God? The Lord desires us to expect everything from his goodness, and yet these men tell us it is presumption to rest in it. 
O teacher, worthy of the pupils whom you found in these insane raving schools, saying that, by the oracles of God, sinners are enjoined to entertain the hope of salvation, let us willingly presume so far on his truth as to cast away all confidence in our works, and, trusting in his mercy, venture to hope. He who hath said, quote, according to your faith, be it unto you, unquote, Matthew 9, verse 29, will never deceive. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.